Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Jessica Bantam. Jessica is the design DEIB consultant, and she is a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging practitioner, interior design consultant, and speaker whose mission is to help designers increase their cultural competence so they can create in ways that honor humanity. Jessica is a business-minded creative whose professional experience spans marketing, IT, management consulting, and startup leadership. She's a skilled consultant with over 20 years of experience. Her roster of clients include renowned universities, global professional associations, and government agencies. Jessica is a graduate of the University of Virginia and Marymount University and holds a master's in interior design, as well as a combination of a variety of certifications in DEI, change management, design thinking, coaching, and facilitation. She's the author of Design for Identity, How to Design Authentically for a Diverse World. And it is my pleasure to welcome Jessica to the deep dive. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for having me here today. In all of our pre-conversation, I can't believe I, you know, you mentioned you went to UVA. I know lots of people who went to UVA because I went to Duke for business school and that's like a, UVA is like a feeder (laughs) for Duke master's kids. And so I was like, we we don't have to talk about this on the show, but I am aware of the black bus stop. (laughs) So good. good. Yes. The the BBS lives on. It does live on. And so now everybody everybody listening to the show is going to be like, Black Bus Stop, what does that mean? Was that a shout out to Jim Crow? I don't understand what they're talking about. Don't worry about it. If, all you, right? know, you, Just, know. if you know, you know, right? This is, an ex- this is a perfect example of why culture matters, right? Exactly. A lot of folks might not know about that Black Bus Stop. I didn't even go to UVA and I know about Black Bus Stop. It is a legend. <laughs> it is a legend. So- you know, we I discussed, I tell you a little bit about my impression of the book. I, I think it couldn't be more timely, uh, a book like this for so many reasons, given the fact that I know the time between writing a book and a book being published can be quite long. The timing, again, probably felt super right when you started the process is even more right today. <laughs> so I, I want to give you an opportunity to explain or, or tell our, our listeners, what was the catalyst for writing the book? Why did you think focusing not just on design, but design as it pertains to identity was something that was needed in the world? Yeah, well, it's interesting. There were a few things that contributed to the, uh, I guess, the, the genesis of this book. One was that I have been doing two things in parallel throughout my career, uh, one being consulting, where I made a formal pivot from IT to management consulting to DEI specifically in 2019. And then I've also been an interior design consultant uh, for over 15 years as well. And when I started doing my DEI work and having conversations about culture and difference day in and day out, it started making me look at the practice of design differently. You know, being in design spaces, I was always aware of, you know, 
that I was I was one of the few chocolate chips in the cookie dough. <laughs> um, and there's just generally not much diversity in the industry. Always been super aware of that. But when I started, you know, formally getting into DEI and looking at the implications of a lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion on a profession, it made me look at how we show up as designers differently. There were conversations that just weren't happening in the design space. And it felt particularly relevant. You, you know, you mentioned the timing. In the summer of 2020, a lot of organizations start making proclamations about supporting racial justice, supporting social justice. And it, it was odd to me because it was like you ignored all of these things on May 24th. But after the May 25th, 2020 murder of George Floyd, all of a sudden your eyes are open. And to me, it was a lot to navigate in that time um, because some of it felt a little disingenuous to me because it was like, this has been happening. So why now? Why this awakening now? And then to see a lot of organizations, including in, in the design industry, putting out these statements, I was really curious to see what was going to be next. And what I've seen over the last couple of years is there hasn't been much next. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I really felt like in the design space, there was opportunity to really start digging into how we can show up differently. What is really going to move the needle when it comes to honoring humanity, not just DEI as a term or as an, an initiative, et cetera, but what can we really do differently? And there were you know, a couple of things like that. As I mentioned, the statements that were coming out, not seeing much proof of progress after that. Also, as a leader in an organization, when we were doing recruiting and having interviews, especially with more junior professionals that were coming into into the workforce, they were asking questions. They, they didn't want to just know that a, a company had a DEI committee or a DEI officer. They wanted to know, what are you really doing about it? And part of my approach to DEI work is a, a focus on action. How do we start doing things differently today? And then also, how do we start then building the narrative about how we're transforming. What are we doing to make a difference here? And I wanted to make that plain and make it clear for the design profession. Here is one way, here is a path that you could go down to show that you really do stand behind these principles that you're espousing and have some real proof and a real story to tell. And you know, you mentioned pretty early in the book that Juneteenth was one of those standout moments for you. And I, I want you to go into a little bit more detail there, because I have my own kind of personal strong feelings about Juneteenth. So I'm always curious to hear others, yeah. <laughs> particularly when it's referenced as as something that where a light bulb went off. I, I have a lot of feelings around Juneteenth and the, the sudden urgency to celebrate it. And, but I do mention in the book that that was one of those moments. So it was uh, Juneteenth in 2021 where there started to be a lot of uh, deliberate attention, you know, put towards this this observance, and it became a thing where I knew that the the usual American process was going to happen, where an observance would become commercialized, and it just happened so instantaneously. And as I was seeing products coming out that were celebrating Juneteenth, and seeing things on shelves, seeing an ice cream flavor, really, Walmart, to honor Juneteenth, seeing products that said, you know, it's the freedom for me. Why would you do that? It, it was just almost in, insulting <laughs> to me personally, of course, as a as an African-American, but also just in the, the grand scheme of things, seeing an observance that had been neglected, you know, in the mainstream um, for it suddenly to become this hot topic. And I felt like 
it was really diminishing a lot about what the observance actually meant. But seeing those products, though, you know, through that design lens made me start really thinking some more, too, about what conversations are happening among design teams. Who is choosing that, you know, this is something that we're going to start. These are the words that we're going to use on these products. Uh, these are even appropriate products to even create in the first place and to market. And, you know, that was one of those light bulb moments where I started thinking about why we need people with diverse perspectives, people with lived experience in the design process so that we can be the ones to say what's going on, what signals are we sending by designing things this way, by using these words, these images, et cetera, et cetera. And that is something that to me is on the designers to take some ownership of. And in general, I could go on a lot too, because Juneteenth itself, you know, being a DEI officer and a DEI consultant, I get into conversations about what should we observe? How should we observe things? And with Juneteenth being something that was new, I actually asked some organizations, is this something you should even be doing at all? Because if you don't have the context for the significance of this, maybe you need to ramp up on that first and then have the conversation about whether you move forward and how. And it also would help to get the voice of your Black staff, <laughs> your maybe your Black ERG, to get their perspectives too, so you're not being performative and just coming up with what you think is a significant way to honor this observance. And, you know, that's one of the, the funny things about something like a Juneteenth, right? And, and, and I'm, I'm not going to turn this into a Juneteenth conversation, but um, so much of these ideas are sort of nested in the idea of like shared knowledge, right? And sort of cultural relevance. And this might be like not the thing to say, but I think I've said this before. I don't know too many Black people that was really all that into Juneteenth. Right. or even knew what it was yeah you're yeah Yeah. so so if you if you were in an organization and you like let's say i was at your organization and you were like hey phil what do you think about us like having this juneteenth celebration right i'd have been like man that's just a ralph ellison (laughs) book like like i know the history of it but i'm like I think you can sit this one out, right? Like, exactly. We ain't really on that like that, right? Right. Right. But in the co-option now, like white people think this is something that like we do, right? Like motherfuckers be sending me like Happy Juneteenth. (laughs) Yes, yes, I got that. I got. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Exactly what you mean. I, and I had that same thing. And it was funny because friends, uh, some of my friends were joking actually leading up to Juneteenth, you know, after it became a big thing. I'm like, do you think your coworkers are going to say like happy Juneteenth? And we were like betting on it. And of course, like, I don't yeah. to anyone that I know. It's like, do they all think we were sitting around like that scene in the glory in glory where they start singing about like, I love the 54th, <laughs> you know, like with banjos in the woods, like celebrating Juneteenth. I'm like, man, come on. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm happy that that old lady that we used to walk every year, like she was like 195 years old. Yes. I'm super happy for her that she's seen this in her lifetime. But for me, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Opal Lee, who is also a sorer of mine. <laughs> yes, I Shout out to her. Too. <laughs> I, I hold her down, right? right. She's right. like, She's at the State of the Union, probably like <laughs> clapping and shit. <laughs> I'm like, good for you. <laughs> but 
for the rest of us, like I, I've been on the record and I always want to say this, like to me, Juneteenth should be black people have off double the pay. Everybody else at work. There you go. I'm like, how did this become a holiday for everybody? <laughs> right. <laughs> that would be culturally relevant. Yes. Let us stay home, <laughs> pay us more, and y'all all work. Yep. And experience a blackless day. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of things would slow down that day. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing nothing would happen. Right. The world would the world would grind to a halt. <laughs> Food would go unflavored and undelivered. It'd be terrible. <laughs> it's like this is what we need, right? So, so when I read that, it, it it just made me made me think about the importance of identity, right? And I feel like that's why I, I kind of highlighted that I think in this moment, the book and your and your work seems even more relevant. Because you're like clearly a much kinder person than myself, right? In the sense that you're like, oh, they haven't been doing much. They're taking shit back, right? Like identity is now like when they used to use the race, the race card used to be the word back in the OJ days. Now it's identity, right? Like you're using identity politics and you're fighting a war and all this kind of stuff, right? So you're doubling down on the importance of identity at a time when identity is under siege, right? So I, I want to get your thoughts about how identity has become this, this focal point for conflict. Well, I think so much of our terminology is being weaponized, <laughs> you know, for anybody's purposes. Um, to me, I mean, to weaponize the term identity, like you really have to be really reaching for something to me because it is just to me so representative of who people are and what makes them them. And I don't think you can and should really overcomplicate that. I think identity is universal. It's something that is understood. It's a term I chose to use because there are so many terms in DEI, DEI itself, that have become so polarized that to me, it was one that was still. I won't even say I was aiming to be neutral. I was aiming to use the word for how I intend to, how I use the word, my understanding of the word and what I think outside of any political environment that people get what identity is. And, you know, I just, I, I feel like it's something that is broad enough too that, that it should be more commonplace in the context of design because we have terms out there like inclusive design and universal design, which also should be, you know, things that are broad enough uh, for all to reach and touch on every element of humanity. But they're still also discussed in very minimal kind of uh, scopes when you really look at it. We talk about universal design and interior design, we're usually talking about ability and maybe talking about aging, which are very relevant elements of, you know, dimensions of humanity, but they're not the full spectrum. And when I was looking at identity, I wanted to make sure that people were getting that this is broader than just ability, just age, just neurodiversity, which is another topic that is really you know hot in interior design right now too, that we're looking at the comprehensive picture of what makes us us. And I'm also, of course, not negating the importance of race, especially in our society <laughs> as one of those major elements. But the idea, once again, is to look at everything that makes us us so that we can be aware of that when we are designing. So we can make space for that 
so we can make space and conversation for customers to share what about their identity is important to them to honor and celebrate. So, yeah, it's a constant battle with the way terms are manipulated these days. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think used against us or, or weaponized are perfect ways to think about the way you're having these one has these conversations because I, I do see these words sort of being pulled apart in a way that trying to negate our differences, right? As if differences are bad, which is always like interesting to me, right? Like we have to try to find this sameness when there's overlap, but there are also distinctions, right? And I think when you when you start to talk in the book around cultural competence, it starts to bring that to light a little bit. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of highlight and, and go into some detail as to why cultural competence is is so important in the framework of thinking about how to design better. Yeah. And I, it's funny, if you probably flip to any page in the book, you'll more than likely see the term cultural competence or culturally competent. Uh, so it is relevant to, uh, to really emphasize that. Um, so I'll just start off with the definition. Cultural competence is the ability to understand, appreciate, and interact with people from different back, from backgrounds that are different than yours. To me, it's a very important concept because there are things like cultural awareness, right? Where you can just, you know, maybe you, for example, you're aware of different observances from different religious belief systems. It's one thing to have that knowledge and to know it exists. It's another thing to understand what the customs are that are associated with those observances, what their relevance is to the people who celebrate them, and to really engage proactively in conversation and an exploration of what those things are. That is what cultural competence is about. It's really about, you know, that concept of appreciation is really key because we have to, we have to respect the fact that there are many different realities that people live on this earth. <laughs> and somebody else's reality may not necessarily be the same as yours. It may be something completely out of your frame of reference, but it is their reality. So we have to at least accept that fact. <laughs> We don't necessarily have to embrace everything about everybody's lifestyle, but we have to have that appreciation for the fact that other people are going to live their lives in different ways that may not necessarily align with yours. And that is what it is. We have to give each other that freedom to do that. And that's really important in the context of design, because what happens a lot when we start, I guess, maybe delving into our cultural awareness <laughs> is that we start interpreting what's important to others. And then we start using that limited understanding to dictate how we design to quote unquote, represent people from other backgrounds. And that's where we go wrong. That's where our cultural appropriation happens. We can do harm by imposing our understanding of somebody else's reality on them through design. So it's important to really lean into that cultural competence so that we can gain that understanding so that we proactively engage with people in conversation about their their experience. And once again, what's really meaningful to them, what's appropriate to them for you to incorporate into a design so that we can honor that and make sure that when we say we're designing with we are actually designing with people and we're designing with their humanity in mind. And I was really curious about the quotient that you describe in the book, this culture quotient and the the what and the how of making the song 
come together. And the reason why it was really interesting to me is so many things in culture spaces, and this is kind of my editorial, my opinion, are, you know, they're both art and science, right? Some of it is something you can probably learn by reading something or, you know, doing kind of the work I do, kind of ethnographies and anthropology type work. And there's another thing to kind of be of something, right? And, and maybe I'm I'm not using the right words, right? But I, I, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, I'm in a fraternity, you're in a sorority, right? So instantly there's things we understand about our experiences, even if they're at different times, different grooves, but there's enough similarity in those things that we kind of get it, right? We're like, a marketing person might say, oh, step shows are really important to this demographic of of Black people. So let me just do that, (laughs) right? Right. (laughs) So this is a very imperfect ad hoc example, right? But what I'm trying to get at is some folks might say, oh, well, I can learn enough in order to replicate this or kind of lean into it. So I kind of don't really need you per se, not you, you, but like us, right? Because a a big part of what you talk about is making these organizations more diverse, right? Making them places where, you know, you, you look around and you're like, damn, there ain't no black people here. Right. Um, and they might make the argument, well, I don't need that black people here. Right. Like I kind of can study y'all and kind of get a sense of it, right? So I'm, I'm not saying that's your argument, right, right. but I'm trying to like determine how we best not guard against that, but be aware of that thinking. Because again, we're in an environment where, you know, all that affirmative action, the DEI, all of it's just kind of, we in reconstruction days, right? <laughs> that's how I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm about to go out and get like that black civil rights waistcoat. <laughs> top hat. <laughs> I'm just leaning, I'm just leaning full in. Right. So Simon Haley, for those who saw like Roots Next Generation, that's going to be my new look <laughs> going forward. Not even Alex. I'm going to Simon. <laughs> you know, so, so given all that, <laughs> Roots Next Generation aside, like how do we balance that, what I'm describing as art and science, but I think you understand what trying to say. I do. I do get what you're saying. And I think that the key element here is the lived experience. And so just like you were saying, somebody could want to do something about fraternity sororities and be like, oh, you know, I watched like Drumline or something, you know, and, and think that they got it. But you don't really have it unless you can connect in a, a more meaningful way with the people who celebrate that. So just like you're saying for for fraternities for for uh, sororities for any type of uh, fraternal kind of organization like that yes there are the outward facing things that you can easily access but the members know <laughs> the rituals the practices that we know what's sacred to us and what should never go beyond our our organization and our understanding um, and to be like that inside track that is the key information that is the information that can help an organization either honor someone's background or, as I mentioned, do harm and maybe desecrate it or, you know, just go outside the boundaries of what they should be doing in design. 
And an example that I came across, because in, in writing the book, or even even leading up to the book, I started seeing a lot of stories about cultural appropriation in design. And of course, they came. To, it wasn't like they were new, just like everything that's covered now. It was just that now there's this awareness, you know, this was post-2020, now we'll talk about it. But there was an example where Nike had, they had designed a new athletic wear line using a symbol that was actually adapted from a tattoo from a particular tribal uh, ethnicity. And to them, it was just like, oh, look at us being diverse. Look at us incorporating different backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. But to that particular tribe, that was a sacred symbol. That was something that was associated with rituals and internal understandings among themselves. Like that was really symbolic of something significant in that society. So that was desecration. And they then Nike faced a backlash and had to end up, uh, you know, taking that that whole line down. So what would have been the game changer in that particular instance would have been having a designer who had that background <laughs> or maybe even had an understanding of the importance of symbols to certain populations that could have said, hey, guess what? This may not be the way to go. And as designers, there are so many things that, you know, we are creative problem solvers. There are so many different solutions that we could come up with. Delve into diversity, maybe that wasn't the answer. You know what I mean? Like, and somebody who gets it, who would have been in the room, could have said, he's saying it. And and I want to jump in on that because, you know, there's always been conversations about, like, being in a room, right? Like, there's this mythological room <laughs> that we're all in and there's always a table, right? Because we need a seat at the table in that mythological room, right? So much furniture, right? So much furniture. Um, and so I think about my own experiences in corporate, right? And, you know, when you're, when you're faced with not, there's not many of you, right? And sometimes you're the only one and you're in that room, and you have a seat at that table, you ain't really trying to speak up. (laughs) Like, I know it's everybody thinks like, you know, that's a, and that's a heavy responsibility, right? Like, you know, that not only do we have to like do our jobs, right. Or whatever we've been hired to, because some people are like, you know, myself and yourself, like we're often hired into a situation. Right. And so we got to do that shit on, on a competent level, but then we also have to like, safeguard the race right right and be like damn burger king you shouldn't have put mary j in that in that chicken commercial right, right. <laughs> but then i think to myself like mary j you a regular chick you know black people and chicken is weird <laughs> right <laughs> so why didn't you say something right <laughs> right when you when they was like hey croon about chicken <laughs> you're mary j blige right like you could have been like nah right i'm not feeling that Right. <laughs> but you didn't. So, you know, not throwing Mary, Mary J under the bus. I love you, Mary J. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of like that's a conundrum, right? That we are often the least senior, have the least power, but then also have to be the ones to be like, nah. Right. Or kind of you want to, you know, raise the hand. You know, again, it's like kind of why didn't anybody speak up? Right. And And there's a. <laughs> This is like a super nerdy reference, right? But this is a long time ago. But when the new Star Wars movies were coming out, not them latest terrible ones, but the prequels, <laughs> right? Phantom Menace, they had this documentary where like George Lucas got all the people together 
to show them like early screenings of what was going to be Phantom Menace. And you could look around the room and everybody was like, what the fuck is this? Right? <laughs> but when the lights went on and he was like, what do you think? Everybody was like, oh, that was great, George. You know? like, <laughs> I think we have a massive, <laughs> we have a massive hit on our hands. <laughs> Did nobody say shit? <laughs> Even though you know that people are like, Jar Jar Binks? Dude, this is a modern day minstrel show. What are you doing? <laughs> so long way to ask, how do you be in those positions and ultimately be the one to, again, raise the hand, Right. Assuming you're even going to be listened to in the first place. Well, that's the thing. And that's that's one of the things I address in the book, too, is the environment that is created in these spaces in design organizations. And it's not only on the people with the lived experience to raise our hands. It is on the people, the majority, who control the, the temperature of the room, <laughs> right, to be the ones to signal, yes, I do want to hear what you say, what you have to share. Yes, I do value that. Yes, I do want to engage in dialogue with you so I can understand what this means in this moment for this design, for the people that we're designing for. It is not all on us. And I, I, I'm conscious of stressing that, you know, in the book, too, and in this whole conversation about how we can make shifts to actually make space for this conversation, that it is not all on us. And, I, and it's interesting, this whole concept of us being the ones to be forthcoming, to raise our hands, to spill our guts essentially came up a lot in the summer of 2020 when I was seeing, you know, myself, who was the only person of color in my organization at the time, and other friends of mine, other Black friends of mine, who suddenly everybody in their organizations was like, oh, you're Black, you can tell us what to do. And tapping on us, especially in a moment where we were at our most vulnerable, I would say, I know I can say that for myself personally, in the middle of a pandemic, dealing with this racial awakening happening around me where it's like, I've been Black all along. Why are you just acknowledging it now when it's convenient for you? And you now you want to take something from me when I'm also traumatized by what the whole world has just watched as well. So, you know, I will never neglect that. This is a huge ask for people with lived experience. That cannot be diminished. It cannot be overlooked. It also can't be expected that just because maybe a leader of an organization says, hey, I read this book, <laughs> guys, we're going to jump in and do this, that they should expect that the next day, you know, all of your employees of color are going to be like, all right, well, let me run, you know, run down everything about us and, you know, invite you into the bar, you know, to the barbecue. It's not going to go down like that. This is about building trust. It's about understanding this is going to be a process where if you didn't value my perspective yesterday and all of a sudden you want it today doesn't mean you're going to get it. This is something that has to become a practice and there has to, has to be intention about the signals that the leaders of these organizations are sending to say, yes, we really value your input and we understand that your experience, your insight, your perspectives are going to be the game changers because demographics are shifting. We have a whole new population we're going to have to connect with and you have that information. You have that experience and that ability to connect with the people that we need to be able to connect with. Understand that because we do have the power in that. And, you know, it's, I'm glad you brought up like the demographics and, and things changing because I, I think, yes, the, the writings on the wall as it pertains to, you know, Steve Stout said this years ago, you know, browning of, you know, tanning of America, right? Was I think his book and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And many others have said it before, before Stout did, but, you know, 
popular name to drop, right? So I'll just go ahead and drop that one on people, right? <laughs> but I, I, I think, you know, the fact that this is happening, right, is, is why we're seeing such a swift and vehement, you know, clap back against the moments that you describe, both in the context of our conversation and talk about in the book, right? Where these folks, to whatever degree, th- those moments after George Floyd were genuine, that shit's donezo, right? Like, they are like, Mm-mm. it's like that never even happened, right? So we're now in this new reality, right? Or maybe it's the old reality, but louder. right um but i was i mean i will say too that that this reality that we're in i think there's also still there is still some good intention that people have not been empowered to kind of act on and this may sound overly optimistic (laughs) no no no. you know what i could use some optimism (laughs) so run with it i think that there was just like you said i think there was some some genuine shift for some people in 2020 and I, but I think what's been missing is what they've been asking for and probably asking the wrong people for. So I will say I was one of those people who went to a school that was desegregating, you know, my elementary school. I grew up in uh, public schools that were always very integrated, you know, very diverse student bodies. I went to a PWI for college. I've been in corporate America. <laughs> you know, I'm used to being in environments with, with very diverse populations. So it was interesting to me to hear people, some people I've known for years who were actually saying, I'd like to know more. Like there was, there was that genuine desire to want to change things, to do things differently. And I think that a lot of those people who expressed that probably addressed us or, you know, approached us at a a wrong (laughs) moment where, like I was saying, things, our emotions were really raw. We were processing a lot on our own. So we didn't want to be the one to tell you and we don't have any responsibility or duty to do that. I chose to do that with the people that I knew who I was, I had meaningful relationships with. But the thing is, I think a lot of people, I think that that desire to help went unanswered. Not that it was anyone's duty necessarily to answer it, but there there was still that feeling where people wanted to do something they just didn't know how. And that was also part of the reason that I felt like I wanted to write a book that's kind of like a how-to this is how to make that difference. This is how to channel those those feelings that you have, this you know desire to be an ally, channel it into something productive in the design space. This is how you can show up differently as a designer. And I'm hoping that that will at least fill some people's appetite, you know, for some kind of direction about what to do. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think that's one of the the merits to the book, right? The many merits to the book, but. It is very clear that there's a roadmap here, right? Without reading like a roadmap, right? Like it's it's a very natural way, which which kind of this is kind of be a back end question, but since you kind of set it up for me, like what I really loved, but then what also made me kind of like about the book was like when I was reading it and the things you were both describing from your experience and then prescribing as someone in the field, I was like, this is your job. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like it was, and, and I'm not saying that to mean that like you were stating something obvious. I'm <laughs> saying that like, how are y'all not doing this? 
Right. No, and I was thinking that while I was writing it, some of the things that I wrote, I was like, why does anyone have to state this? This is, this should be basic common knowledge. Uh, like one of the, one of the uh, culturally competent, one of the habits of culturally competent designers is believe people. Should I have to say believe people when they tell you something about their identity and don't try to reinterpret it? Like it, it should be that basic, but here we are. <laughs> but it's also very, I see this in a lot of spaces, right? Where, you know, we both active users on LinkedIn. So you see it's kind of LinkedIn has a beat, right? Of how to post, what gets posted, all this kind of stuff. And and sometimes I'll see these posts that are like, oh, if you want to understand leadership, these are like the 10 essential books, right? <laughs> and, you know, I'll look at that picture because it's either a stack yeah. <laughs> or they laid out like a Zoom with some sort of grid, right? Those are usually the most popular ways to present to me your knowledge, right? And I've done the stack too, right? So I'm not even... <laughs> clowning other people, right? It's just my stack is better, <laughs> right? And I, and I say because they'll be filled with books that to me, I'm like, yo, this is some bullshit. Like if this is what you're telling me to read about leadership or management or mark, whatever it is, you're not good at that shit, <laughs> right? Like, you know, if Malcolm Gladwell and Adam Grant and all these people are in your wheelhouse, I ain't fucking with you. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so I see that people's, they're so narrow and you're asking folks to go broader. And I feel like as a well-lived person, much less as a professional, your goal should always be to be broad. And yet people who are supposed to be such geniuses are like nowhere. Right. <laughs> so so that frustrates me. It, it seems like you turned that into something good. <laughs> Whereas like, I'm just like yelling at clouds, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Well, I, this will probably veer off a little bit, but this whole concept of meeting people where they are, I think is why there is that range of books and why there are so many, like you're saying, that are, so simple or basic or or kind of narrow because that's all some people grasp. And it may just be like, that's where they are in their journey. I'd like to give them that much credit that maybe that, that is just. You're good at giving people credit. Right. You know. See, this, this is why I said off the bat, I'm like, yo, you're a better person than me. I'd be like, yo, these motherfuckers are dumb dummies. <laughs> but the thing is, there is always that capacity. There are, are some people I think who do want to think more broadly and they're just, they're not in environments where other kind of broader ideas are brought up. And I mean, as designers though, I think we can't afford not to think broadly. Yeah. Like it's in the job description. Right. right. And so many of these businesses and organizations are trapped in like whiteness and they don't want to, like they don't view, that's why I asked the identity question, right? Like anything that's not white, to them is now you parse an identity because they don't see whiteness as an identity. And I'm like, yo, that shit's a fucking identity. It is all day. And that's something I bring up actually when I share the importance of for designers to seek knowledge, that it's not just about finding about finding out about the quote unquote other. That for predominantly white organizations, you number one, you don't wait until you have a diverse 
workforce to start talking about things that are diverse topics, right? Because number one, it's not on those people that you bring in to teach you about themselves. That's not what they came to your organization for. And also there is no shortage of information available for you to find out about other identities. And most importantly, white people need to investigate the identity of whiteness, just like you're saying, and how that shows up in the context of design. And you don't need anybody else to teach you that. <laughs> That's not on, you know, you don't wait until you have a DEI officer to delve into that. That is something you can start reflecting on <laughs> on your own right now. But it's also amazing to me how the whole global majority is more aware and has a deeper understanding of the concept of whiteness than white people. Yeah. As an interior designer, you studied this, you talk about it in the book. Like I think of, you know, and I like a home a home design show as much as the next person, right? Like turn on the TV on a Saturday afternoon and I'm good for the next five, six hours. I could check out, right? <laughs> Sleep. If I fall asleep, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right? <laughs> Just catch the last five minutes, right? If I stay awake, it's entertaining, even though it's kind of the same thing. And, you know, HGTV is such an agent of whiteness. And, you know, some people are going to listen to this show and be like, oh, that Phil is always talking about white people. I'm like, look, calm down. All right. I like Property Brothers. This ain't about that. All right. I'm not against them two dudes. All right. But as an aesthetic, right, as a mindset, even when they got black people on the show or on the shows, right, because there's tons of different shows, right? It's always the same thing, right? It's the same aesthetics. It's the same notion. And when you start to dig into how some of these people make their moves on these shows, when they be like taking over houses and shit, it's also like pro-gentrification. It's pro-exploitation. And I thought about you juxtapose this entire network against the real reality of Black people who get like lower appraisals on their homes unless they like de-black that shit, exactly. right? So they got to take down their pictures. They got to have a white friend show up to let the appraiser in. You know, if it's like, you know, we talk about fraternity and sorority, you got to take down all our paddles and shit, <laughs> you know, line pictures, <laughs> you know, you know, all them broken paddles that bros like pin up to the walls and she got to take all the nails out. I'm like, it's a lot of work. <laughs> so you got a, a network that is invested in this one aesthetic. And then you got the reality of Black people who can't get a decent appraisal on their home if you let them know that there's Black people there. You know, all the shea butter got to come out the fucking bathroom and shit. <laughs> it's a disaster. I have the grease can on the stove. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a disaster. <laughs> You know, <laughs> how much cleaning that is? <laughs> They'd be like, oh, pomade. I'm glad people live here. <laughs> you got me. There's too many, there's too many Air Max in this house. There's no way a white man lives here. Do <laughs> <laughs> you see all those Jordans? <laughs> and so how do we confront that, right? As a designer. And then I'm and then I'm gonna get to the last two segments of the show. <laughs> Well, we have it too. We have it too much fun. Now. We're gonna <laughs> go on for that. Could, that this little segment could go on for quite a while. Um, but it's interesting. So one thing I have to say about HGTV it, that 
what it represents to me is that there's so much more opportunity to show other ways to address design. It is unfortunately the one primary medium that we have out there that is dictating what design is, that's informing the public or, or providing that one point of reference for what design is, what it can be, what the process looks like, et cetera. That channel, that network serves its purpose for entertainment. That, But like I said, there is also opportunity then for other mediums to be brought into the into existence that cover the re- more realistic approaches, I will say, and the, more of the realities of what even the design process itself is and what the, the possibilities of design are. Uh, you know, if you look at HGTV, you look at designs that you could plug in client A, client B, client C, and the idea is that it's just supposed to serve one purpose, <laughs> you know, that anybody could drop in here and live here and it should be great. But the reality of design is that it should be, especially in a residential context, it should be crafted and customized to the identity, the identity of the individual or the family or the people that are going to be in that space. And that's where we as designers have to kind of fill in that void in terms of even public education, even educating ourselves. Because if we're also still, you know, prescribing to this this one way of designing, and this what I call culturally neutral way of designing, and we're not doing anything different to change it, then that's on us. And I just I just think there's a lot more that clearly can be done to make the the understanding of the public more realistic and more dynamic and more, you know, representative of what design is actually about, what it can be, what it can do, what the process can look like, how you can be involved in it. And you should, once again, especially in the context of your own residence. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we can go on and on and on about this stuff because it, it's so fascinating. That's why I was going through this and I was like, man, this is going to be a two-parter. Because <laughs> there's there's so many elements of this. And I, and that's why I think the book was, was such a delight and so much fun to go through. So we're going to have to do this again and have some more jokes. Um, so I, w- I want to get to the final two segments of the show. The first one is Off the Dome. And Off the Dome is just an opportunity for me to ask some off-the-top questions. And, you know, I'm, I dug into the bio on this a little bit. So you're an R&B, 90s R&B. So I got to ask some a couple of questions on the music tip. I'm a big music guy, so the whole thing could have been music. But then that would have been a whole nother conversation. <laughs> so, um, you know, some are going to be kind of obvious. I, mean, I know you've had these conversations before. Okay, so off the dome, the first one, 90s R&B, Jodeci or Boys to Men? Which is it? That's not even right. Oh, that's the rightest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is not even right. Got to pick one. I'm going to say you- concert, same night. The venues are the same. You got the comparable seats in both. Where are you going? I got to and the, and the time starts the same. <laughs> All things equal. All things equal. I got to go with Jodeci. Okay. Jodeci. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> Even though voice men are also from Philly, I got to go. You know, <laughs> I like voice to men, but I don't really like voice to men. <laughs> like their music is just syrup dipped in light sugar. Okay. And there's there are times for that too, okay? <laughs> We're not going to bash Boyz II Men. Is there? <laughs> I mean, 
the most love I showed the boys to men was when Wanye was on Dancing with the Stars, <laughs> and he was killing that shit. That motherfucker should have made it to the final, and they X'd him out before that. And I was like, this is blasphemy. He was <laughs> he was killing it for a dude not known. You know, boys to men was not known as a dancing group, right? Right. Right. And that dude was killing it on Dancing with the Stars, which kind of shows my TV view watching. But um, <laughs> but Jodeci was just on that reel and. Another reason why I don't fuck with Boyz II Men, and you'll get this, when I was going out for the hood, that was right when their first album dropped. Mm. And every Kappa started their step show with, uh, uh, and I was like, <laughs> I can't. You know, I, I, certain moments can kill a song for you. I understand that. I understand. If I have to see a bunch of crimson and cream canes <laughs> shimmying to... Injection baby, <laughs> my head will explode. <laughs> I never want to hear that song again as long as I live. And I wasn't even a bro yet. I was just a P-boy and I was still mad about it. <laughs> so sick and tired of that fucking song and album. <laughs> uh, well, what's your favorite Jodeci song? Wow. That is tough. I don't know if I I'm I'm tough with favorites. I'm gonna say the first two albums. Okay. Really. Yeah. You know, Mr. Dalvin, you know that dude. <laughs> Devante. <laughs> That motherfucker could produce his ass. <laughs> <Yes, he could. laughs> <laughs> and they have more of my look. You know, Tim's, right. some baggy-ass Jabos, <laughs> the whole nine yards, yeah. right? Yes. Um, so the second one, Mary J or Tony Braxton? And I already gave a shout-out to Mary J. Mary. That's a good one, too. Tony Tony killed that dress, but... <laughs> no, and I love Tony, too, but it, I, Mary's more of my girl. I don't know. I just... Actually, you know what I will say, though? I got to say, Tony Braxton's most recent records are a little better than Mary J's most recent records. I, I, I might give you that. The one with Long, yeah, long yeah, As yeah. I Live. Yeah, that's a dope. That's a dope record for late stage Tony Braxton. <laughs> um, very underrated, too. Everyone's very underrated. So the third one, you talked about colors in the crayon box, the 64 box, which for a poor kid from Brooklyn, I used to envy y'all bougie types who had that 64 <laughs> box crayons. It was a treat in my house. Because my mom, my mom was straight up buying me that. First of all, for many years, she didn't even get me crayons because she was like, the teacher got crayons in the in the classroom. <laughs> that butter tin of crayons where all the colors would be all blended together. And they're all broken in half. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I hated them crayons. But when she finally was going to get me crowns, I had that eight box. Because yeah. <laughs> she was like, what more do you need? That got all the basic colors. <laughs> so I had that sad eight box, no sharpener. That mess sucked. <laughs> so the minute you talk about that 64 box, I had to ask the question, what was your first, did you let other kids borrow anything out of your 64 box crayons? And what was your favorite crayon in the 64 box of crayons? Funny. So I have two siblings, so we had to share everything. Okay. Absolutely everything. And I will say I would try my hardest to be the first one to use every crayon because I really like the newly like sharp ones. <laughs> like I wanted yeah. to use them first. <laughs> and the sharpener in the back didn't quite do what the, you know, it wasn't the same. No, it didn't come like how it came with, they had the, the shapes exactly. around the tip and everything. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So yeah, I had no choice but to share but I had three color, I had a three color combination and this is going to be, it's a very 80s color combination when I think about it, but it was red, violet, green, blue, and violet. That was my favorite okay. from that, my favorite combination from that. 
My favorite color, because they had a kid in my class who had the 64 box. He would never let anybody use some shit. So he's an <laughs> asshole. Which is why I asked that question. Because his drawing would be like a fucking kaleidoscope. And all the rest of us had like the most basic shit ever. The rainbow, right? <laughs> yeah. Grass was just green. You know, his grass looked like Augusta. It had all kind of gradients and shit. Like, did you use pine green on the trees to make a distinction between the, the tree and the grass? Oh my God. <laughs> you know, but my favorite crayon, even though I have very little reason to use it, was Periwinkle. Oh, yeah. I love good call. Just because I like the name and I didn't quite know what I would need it for, but just something about seeing a Periwinkle crayon used to just light my imagination on fire. <laughs> love it. <laughs> <laughs> so those are my off the dome questions. And now we're going to get to the drop. And the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything at all with my listeners a recommendation. I'll go first. My drop is a, a new magazine, online magazine and newsletter is called Hammer and Cope. Hammer and Hope. Let me make sure I say that clearly. It's a, a black radical thought magazine around politics and culture. Two issues are out so far. Um, highly recommended, particularly in times like these times. If you want to kind of get your political fervor and, and some really thoughtful writers and, and thinkers, Hammer and Hope is my drop. So you're up. I'm going to have to check that out. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I've been trying to find things to kind of lighten my mood lately because everything's so heavy. Mm -hmm. And this isn't new, but the series Loot on Apple TV, the comedy with Maya Rudolph, absolutely hilarious. Like, I, I think everybody should just check that out. And the, and the actor who plays her cousin is like my new, my new favorite actor on anything. He is hilarious. So check that out. And then one more thing is Galapale has a new song, which I love her. It's called Time Heals. And, you know, I love her going back to the days of Closer, which is one of my all-time favorite songs. But uh, everybody should check out her new one. <laughs> amazing, amazing artist. She's, I remember the first time I saw her in concert, I went to a party. One of my boys threw this party in, in San Francisco. This before San Francisco was filled with tech assholes and, and idiots. <laughs> it was like the, the mid-90s. And she performed at this party and did closer right like this was like the album wasn't even out yet and she was performing and from the first notes i was like you know you drinking you didn't you in a party right so was, somebody's gonna perform that you don't know you don't really pay that much attention and so i you know got my drink i'm in the back blah, 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 you know <laughs> hit the stage she started singing i was like you know right. who's that rapt attention I've been a fan ever since. Yes. <laughs> so those are awesome drops. Awesome drops. You know, Jessica, this has been a lot of fun. I want to thank you for, for being on the show with me. Can't say enough good things about the book. Again, it's called Design for Identity, How to Design Authentically for a Diverse World. We definitely got to do this again. You know, thanks again for being on the deep dive. Thank you for having me. Enjoy. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.